my name is Patrick Ridout. Uh, I'm technically a comic scholar, which means, you know, basically I look at comics, look at uh, different aspects of comics, kind of delve into them. Um, in the past year or really two years because of the pandemic, I have been delving into the genre of cyberpunk. Now, this is a very large genre, so we're only going to talk uh, briefly about different aspects, and we're going to skip a few things, and so I guarantee everyone in this audience will have some picture or some item or some work that you're like, why didn't he talk about that? I probably do in the papers and book that I'm writing, but um, as it is, we only have you know, a short limited amount of time and I don't want to keep you here for a week. So as it is, we've condensed down about a year and a half, two years worth of research into this little talk. Um, so why don't we all join in and kind of understand what we're looking at with cyberpunk in the comic genre. So a um, couple of questions for you guys to consider while I'm sitting here and talking about this whole thing. A um, couple of things, what it means to be human. Um, is it a value of a body or something else? Um, and how does the comic genre of cyberpunk actually address this? Uh, how does the 70s, 80s, and 90s melding of cultures and ideas and evolving of in involvement of ideas actually shape the genre? Um, and as comics in the cyberpunk genre especially are reflective of their own time, um, how do you feel the genre might be shaped in the future, right? So don't feel like you have to answer these, but just something to consider while I'm talking. Um, a couple of objectives for, for today. Um, really what I wanted to do was examine what it meant to be human and how this genre is actually looking at that aspect of it. That's kind of where it started um, because I got into an argument with one of my uh, buddies who lives in France uh, about the comic Blame we'll talk about, briefly about. Um, but it delves into a post-human world. Um, and so it really kind of looks at the question of what it means to be human, what exactly causes a human to be a human versus something else, uh, some sort of evolution. Um, we also want to examine the melding of cultures uh, from the superficial to the deep cuts uh, and look at the evolving dynamics between real world and comic reflection of the genre's val values. So basically what that means is how the world and different news items and uh, events throughout world history at the time when the work was written is affecting the genre and affecting how it's portraying different things, right? If we look at the 80s, it has a much different uh, view of certain diseases uh, versus like the 90s, versus the 2000s, versus anything else. So as the world changes, so does the cyberpunk genre, right? Um, okay, so, but what actually is this thing, right? I'm talking about cyberpunk. We all kind of understand cyberpunk. We all have some sort of like view of it, whether that's Blade Runner, whether that's Transmetropolitan, whether that's Akira, whether that's whatever, right? We all have a different idea of it and we can all kind of picture it in our heads, but we don't really have a full definition of it. So as far as I'm going to go today, uh, it's, it changes slightly every time you look at it, but uh, the generalized view is that it's a genre of near-future sci-fi, meaning that we're right up against it, right? Doesn't really matter the year uh, that we're talking about. We could be two, three hundred years in the future in the story, but generally the technology and the ideas and philosophies are right up against where, wherever we are at the current time. Um, with a focus on uh, the less clean aspects, um, the less neat version of the future, right? We've got your Star Trek, right? Where everything is a utopia and everything is smooth lines and you know slick, the Apple product kind of, of all of the uh, sci-fis, right? And then we have cyberpunk, which is the grimiest, dirtiest, um, just absolutely baseline future that we can look at, right? Um, generally, it's a combination of science fiction, uh, dystopian future site, dark futurism, and hard-boiled detective noir, uh, influenced by the current trends and worldviews, um, which basically just means that we're looking at a dystopian um, post-current uh, world. We're looking at something that didn't wind up happy. We're looking at something that's much darker than what we would normally look at with this like you know bright, hopeful future science fiction of the Star Trek style. 
So a couple of things we're going to cover today, especially. We're going to talk about the core ideas, uh, what it means to be human, melding of cultures and ideas uh, into what we know as the current school of thought, uh, how it evolves with the times, um, and then a couple of items to consider while we're also looking at this. Um, the art is often much more busy than other art in comics. It, it denotes a level of grime and dirt onto it. Um, uh, as opposed to the clean world, um, and it reflects the uh, more cynical nature in um, a very literal sense. You will find that cyberpunk is not very subtle in its message. Um, and of course, we'll talk about the feedback loop, because cyberpunk is such a closed-off genre. We are looking at a genre that feeds off of everything else in the genre. As new works are produced, everybody copies it. As a new work is produced, everyone copies that. And it combines and melds and meshes into this weird dystopian future, uh, futurescape that we've, we kind of all understand as cyberpunk today, right? So why comics? Uh, comics define the cyberpunk genre, right? There are proto-cyberpunk works out there in the 1960s, talking about like Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, things like that, Philip K. Dick, all this stuff. Uh, but comics basically started the aesthetics of it. And it became what we all know as cyberpunk through comics. Uh, visual mediums have a better impact on the world. A writer can describe many things, but if you describe too many things in a story, it bogs down the story. And now you're just stuck with a list of what you're seeing in a scene, in a scene right? It's not great. Um, Comics have a variety of formats and links. We'll talk about that, especially with 2000 AD and uh, Judge Dredd. Um, and then, of course, uh, it pushes the boundaries on what you can say more than other mediums can, simply because it is both a visual medium and not subject to certain types of budget, right? Movies can do great visuals, but they're all subject to their budgets. Novels can do great um, with descriptions and telling great stories, but they can't describe the exact amount of grime and dirt in the world. We are looking at a medium that has kind of a joining of both. So, now that I've gotten all that mess out of the way, um, we're going to talk a little bit about the core ideas. The core ideas of what it means to be human, first of all, right? This is a generalized central tenet of what it means to be human. Uh, Cyberpunk takes the question of what is a human and kind of applies it in a physical, literal sense, right? Um, are you a human who has replaced parts of yourself with something else, right? Whether that's a robotic style thing, are you a cyborg, are you whatever? It, this is, again, not a very subtle genre. It hammers things home. Um, it doesn't necessarily say, oh, think about this you know, subjectively. What does this actually mean? It says, no, no, half your body was replaced with mechanical parts. Are you still a human, right? Which ties into the first type of philosophy that you'll see a lot of in cyberpunk, right? This is a huge central concept, the ship of Theseus. Um, the ship of Theseus, and here's the full quote, but I won't read it to you. It's basic, but it basically says that as a ship rots and we replace parts of the ship, right? As the boards on the left side rot, we replace it with new boards. As, we, as the mast rots, uh, we replace the mast. Is it still the same ship? Are you still human if you replace different parts of yourself with different aspects of technology? Right? Um, so, and the real question is, how, where is that line? And it's something you can't really answer, right? It's, that's the nature of the question. But... The question for everyone while you're reading is understand how much you can replace of yourself before you no longer view yourself as a human, right? Um, so are you the same if you're, uh, or are you the original copy, right? Uh, or, of course, it doesn't matter how much you replace as long as you're still you, right? Your brain waves are the same thing, right? Um, this genre tends to say humans are humans no matter what, right? And oftentimes the conflict does arise from someone not viewing it that way. But generally the message of cyberpunk is doesn't matter how much you replace it, doesn't matter what you do to yourself, as long as you still have your mind intact, you are still a person, right? 
Um, and just to kind of push in, push in and show you guys, all of these characters currently on screen are considered human within their universe, including the guy with the like bunny ears and the Cyclops eye. Um, and we'll talk, we'll talk a little bit about that series here in a minute, but um, all of these characters, no matter how much they've replaced of themselves, still retain their humanity, right? As well, this whole thing ties into disability, right? Uh, so two schools of thought. One, a lot of these different um, worlds and different uh, stories, disability doesn't really exist in the same way that we understand it, right? Because in a world where, you know, if you get into an accident and you can just replace the part that broke, then, you know, you no longer have a disability. People in wheelchairs don't generally exist uh, simply because they can just fix it, right? Um, now, mental disabilities, that is a whole other topic, and we won't be touching on that today because we'll be here for three weeks. But um, as it is, oftentimes, since you can replace things with robotics, even if something breaks and you replace it with something and it breaks again, you can just go and buy a new one, right? Um, as, but the other school of thought is usually where conflict arises, um, where basically the robotics cause the disability. Either they poison them or they de-emphasize your humanity in some certain way. You know, they eat at the soul, basically. Um, those are the two schools of thought for the disability in um, cyberpunk. I know it's a little bit like on the nose. It keeps slamming things down, but that is the nature of cyberpunk, right? Commonly replaced parts that you see um, to show off the style of the world. You've got your eyes um, to be able to see in different spectrums. Um, usually someone who is blind usually gets new uh, enhancements. You have arms for extra tools, manipulators, strength, all that stuff, and legs, of course, uh, for extra mo mobility. Um, it is very rare to see anything replaced within the torso. Just something to keep in mind. There are plenty of series that do this, but they ask a different question, generally. Not necessarily how much of you can re be replaced before you're human, but if are you actually human at that point, right? If you replace your heart, are you still human? That kind of, that kind of question is what they deal with. And here are just a couple of examples you can see. But... The most extreme example of this, of course, is brain in a vat. Brain in a vat is the question of if we just put your brain in a jar, are you still a person, right? Is it, if we replace the entirety of your physical body, except for where your mind lives, are you still a human, right? Um, think the matrix, only a little bit more extreme, right? Um, you're looking at someone who's basically in a pod their whole life and basically visualizing the whole thing. Except in Cyberpunk's case, oftentimes we don't talk about um, the brain being in a vat. The brain might be in a, a completely robotic body. So in this instance, you know, we're looking at someone, we're actually looking at two different characters right here. This corner one um, is also a separate in separate series, but both of them consist of characters who literally are brains put inside fully cybernetic bodies. Um, as well, we're looking at another aspect, which is, of course, high-tech, low-life, right? High-tech, low-life meaning we've got a ton of technology. We've got a ton of, like, interesting future tech, cybernetics, whatever you talk about, as far as you want to imagine. Um, however, We've got a low life. Most of cyberpunk deals with the underbelly of society. We're looking at people who are downtrodden, usually um, sometimes a lower class. Sometimes, um, you know, they're rebelling against the system, hence the punk part. Um, as well as, you know, a focus on how someone who is desperate will take that technology and adapt it to whatever use they need it to be. Um, Generally, they are very cynical characters. They're very lower-level characters. You're looking at uh, main characters of these stories who are drug dealers, who are gang leaders, who are sometimes they're journalists um, and detectives. I don't know exactly what that says about you know those last two, but 
um, with like journalists and detectives, they're very morally gray characters, oftentimes. That is, it, it's part of the grime of the world. It's not just that the world is dirty, the characters are also you know, not so squeaky clean as everything else. So um, you are looking at a lot of uh, people who are, aren't really in the top level of society, which also ties into this key concept of in-stage capitalism, um, meaning that we, and again, this is cyberpunk, so we're not gonna be subtle here. Um, we have literally physically separated um, the people who succeed in life from the people who do not succeed in life. Uh, literally sometimes having the characters who have succeeded live in the clouds thousands of feet above everyone else. Um, they will be on a layer that other people cannot get to. They literally live in ivory towers. Like, it, it's, it's, not a, it's not very subtle in its uh, execution, right? Uh, but it is often used as a backdrop of everything. We don't necessarily attack the CEOs. We don't necessarily attack the politicians all the time, although there are stories that do that. Most of the time, the stories will be on a certain level, and they will stay at that level. They won't try to rise above into another station often. Um, those do exist, but um, the more common one is everyone on the lower level. You might have some uh, manipulation being done from higher castes or, castes or uh, higher classes, but um, generally they don't have a level jumping aspect to it. Um, but of course, depending on the writer, it could be celebrated, it could be um, attacked, right? Um, it could be railed against depending on the political leanings and what the author actually wanted to say within the uh, story. Um, as well, something just to mention because it's something that pops up occasionally. Occasionally this post-apocalyptic kind of dystopian future stylings will bring back some sort of magic, right? Some sort of ancient thing will come back from beyond where it was staying before. Um, usually it is either, either one, the uh, tech will be, the, like high tech and the technology will actually push like a hole in the wall, in the dimensions and pull back um, all the magic. Or um, it could be developed, or it could be that there's, you know, a secret society been practicing the whole time. Um, often it becomes a means to an end. It's not really a focus of the story, but it might be a means to an end for law enforcement, for gangs, for whoever, uh, to enforce their beliefs and enforce the laws that they're trying to protect. Um, usually heralded by a company or person uh, using technology to like actually get into another space. Um, and then it usually ties directly into the new technology that we're looking at, right? Um, oftentimes this new technology interfaces with the, you know, older magic or mysticism or whatever you want to talk about. Um, and often comes paired with the question of, are, is a user of this new magic, new mysticism, new power, whatever you want to call it, are they, do they qualify as human, right? And this also ties into kind of like the biology of things and how people can control, because a human can't control magic, right? So now that you can, because of technology, are you really human? That's the main question. So what does this thing actually look like, right? Um, generally, we want to take uh, some 80s grunge, uh, smash it together with some sort of hard-boiled style, um, mix it with some street, uh, streetwear, uh, punk fashion, however you want to call it. Lots of spikes, lots of leather, lots of um, everything that you're kind of picturing for any stereotypical punk band. Um, then add a cynical view of an overbearing military industrial complex. That's usually, that's usually the case. Someone is bearing down on society, right? Usually this is uh, known as the military industrial complex. Um, Add a grimy version of body modification, uh, function over form, always. One of the things about cyberpunk, it's not pretty. We don't like pretty. We like functional. That's all we care about. We're not lo when you look at a cyber a cyberpunk versus other sci-fi, other sci-fi likes that like sleek, smooth look. 
Uh, we replaced our limbs with something that looks very smooth, lo very, very, you know, sleek and good, right? Um, oftentimes, cyberpunk leans into the dirtiness, the sharp edges, the, uh, what, we'll, what we'll be talking about here in a second, uh, the greeble. Um, and, of course, it's usually a combination of different underbellies of society elements, um, as well as a mixing of cultures, uh, both Asian and Western, smashed together, right? Um, and before I get into the origin, I do want to touch on one little controversy. Because of the reflection of the time of cyberpunk, cyberpunk sometimes had, uh, especially in the early days, a lot of casual racism, right? Just be aware, if you're looking into this, you will find a lot of casual racism, especially in the 80s and 70s uh, stories, because they would just use a lot of Asian stereotypes, all the ones that you can think of, um, as well as a lot of the enemies, uh, if they were mutants or aliens, they certain, seem to have dis certain distinctive features of uh, certain groups of people. So not the greatest thing in the world, but it is something that I want to warn people who are looking into these about because there's a lot of it. Um, but oddly, um, it's more progressive than most science fiction most of the time simply because we are looking at a future that is still dealing with all the issues of the day, right? I told you it was a very close sci-fi, right? We're, still, we're looking at ideas and philosophies that exist today just in a slightly different uh, veneer, right? So a lot of these stories are very progressive. They're pushing their agenda because they want to address whatever controversy is going on currently, right? So it's oddly more progressive than other science fiction where other science fiction will have these, you know, we, well, we solved those issues. We are, we are a utopian society now, right? And, you know, sometimes, sometimes they delve into it. Most of the time they don't, though. That's the thing. Cyberpunk seems to specialize in this. So, Let's talk a little bit about the origins. And we're going to delve a little bit away from comics here for a second, just so we can acknowledge where it actually first started, right? Uh, which actually started in new wave science fiction born in the 60s. Um, it was a pushback uh, with counterculture against the atomic style uh, science fiction, that clean, everybody's going to be happy and perfect in a utopia. Um, and it was a pushback with, hey, I don't want to write happy-go-lucky stories all the time where everything is always solved and everyone is, and humanity is, you know, one behemoth, the, one monolith that will always have the same values and everything else, right? This was kind of a push back against it, right? Looking at something that might be darker, more dystopian, more not so shiny, right? Um, and a couple of authors to keep in mind, uh, uh, I'm going to mess this up, Roger Zelaney, um, J.G. Ballard, Philip Jose Farmer, Samuel R. Delaney, Philip K. Dick, obviously, with uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Um, that is kind of known as a proto-cyberpunk. Uh, and then the first big key uh, cyberpunk novel where everything kind of coalesced together is William Gibson's Neuromancer in 1984. Um, so another name you should be aware of, uh, Bruce Benthke. Um, wanted something that uh, reflected both the future and the pushback against, um, you know, the current status quo. Um, he came up with two words for his novel called Cyber for the Future and Punk for the Hey, We're Gonna Rebel. And he smashed them together. And we actually have a novel called Cyberpunk that was written back in uh, the 70s. Uh, it's the first instance of that word. And everybody just kind of grabbed it, ran with it. And you can kind of see, like, the reason why he did that is because some kids wrecked his computer, and he didn't know what they did. And he said, well, this new generation is going to grow up on computers. They're going to run circles around us. What's going to happen with that? And he wrote a story about it. So, um, so that's where the origin of the term came from, just as an aside. And then, of course, I do need to touch on this. Um, if anyone has heard of this, it's... a Kowloon Walled City, um, which was the densest population on the planet at the time it was demolished. It, it was a section of Hong Kong, um, just a few city blocks, and you can kind of see it there. Um, in comparison, millions of people lived in, 
you know, it's like 10 square blocks, right? Um, and both the Japanese and the Western schools of cyberpunk actually use this as a basis uh, for constructing their cityscapes. This was demolished in 1994, so don't worry about the people who lived there. But if you take a look at some of these photos, you might notice a few things that you've kind of seen before, right? Everyone's seen this in movies, in, you know, music videos, in comics, in books. They all use these, right? Um, this is where this kind of started. And now we're going to pull back to, back to comics, right? Where comics started, I mentioned earlier that comics really invented the genre. This is where it starts. The Long Tomorrow uh, and Mobius. Mobius is one of the most famous authors in comic history. Um, but The Long Tomorrow was written uh, basically while he was helping design Dune uh, back in the 1970s. So um, it was first published in 1976. Uh, it's credited as, as basically the basis for all of the ideas that sprang out of cyberpunk ever. It's about 20 pages long. This is not a long story, right? But it's literally about 20 pages long, published in 1976, and it blew up. Um, it's basically a detective story focused on the underbelly of the city, grimy, dirty, all of that fun stuff. Um, and it's about chasing down the president's brain that got stolen. Um, and it got stolen by aliens. But um, besides that, it's a ton of the ideas that we hear about in cyberpunk. Nowadays, you might have just noticed me in that one sentence. You go, oh, there's three or four of those ideas in there. Um, so Mobius, uh, a.k.a. Uh, Jean Girard, um, he's a French comic artist uh, from, the, uh, I always mess this up, uh, Ben Dessinet, uh comic market, which is the Belgian-French comic market. He was known for every science fiction movie you have ever seen. If you, if you can think of it, he has probably either worked on it or inspired the artist who worked on it. Um, this is everyone from um, Alien to The Matrix to Blade Runner to everything, right? He had his hands everywhere. Um, he was active from 1956 until his death in 2012. He worked right up until he died. Um, I, and I'm blanking on who uh, or what he was actually doing at the time, but he has written hundreds of stories and comics, including huge, long-form uh, long comics like The Inkle and Meta Barons and things like that. Um, and he is also responsible, he's one of the founding members of Metal Hurlant. You guys might not know Metal Hurlant, but you know Metal Hurlant because it has influenced everything. Metal Hurlant, also known as Heavy Metal Magazine here. If anybody's ever heard of Heavy Metal, uh, the comic magazine, it was made into a movie in the 80s. Um, this is where, and he is one of the founding members of it. Um, this, when it came over to America, was one of the staging grounds for underground comics of the entire industry, right? It was not subject to Marvel or DC's oversights, and it wasn't subject to the CCA. For those of you who don't know what the CCA is, that is the Comic Code of Authority, it is a um, deal with comic publishers that said there, were, there was a moral panic over comics and everyone panicked about how it was bad for our children to read comics. And before uh, Congress censored them, because it actually pushed into uh, congressional hearings, it was so bad that uh, before it got to the point where Congress censored them, they said, we will censor ourselves. And so we will not allow certain things in our comics. And for a very long time, for about 50, 60, 70 years, um, we couldn't, you could not get your comic in where comics are sold except for very rare stores if you did not adhere to the CCA, right? Which means you could not talk about certain subjects. You could not... Um, talk about drug use. You could not talk about um, any sexuality. You could only have a certain amount of violence. Um, violence had to be cartoony enough, that kind of stuff. Um, and the CCA, it is one of the reasons why the American comic mar market was neutered for so long and could not explore interesting topics. And it's one of the reasons why when people go back and look at Marvel and DC, it's the same storylines told a dozen different ways. It's the same subject, it's the same matter, it's the same outcome, you know, good guy always wins, that kind of stuff. 
and we had that for a long time. This guy was helping to head up one of the one bastion in the international market that could explore comics in a different way, look at interesting material, look at things that might not be aimed for um, a teenager, right? Something that would be aimed at a more mature audience. Um, he is also one of the people who really got started with the Greeble. Um, the texture of grime and, you know, kind of that old sci-fi look, well used, that shows up in every movie that you've ever seen since, like, Star Wars, right? Um, and probably some of you thought that that was, like, a Star Wars um, ship or something like that. That is just a generic pullout from one of the 3D renderers. Um, but this is what it looks like in comic form. It is just a bunch of nonsense that just creates noise, creates grime, creates this sense of, oh, it's not neat, nice and neat, right? This is very important because it, get, it gives the world its texture. Very important for this stuff. So, Mobius inspired William Gibson, which we just talked about here uh, with the seminal work of Neuromancer in 1984, right? He's, obviously, he is a writer. He's not a part of the comic industry except later in life, but at this point, he was just a writer. Um, but Neuromancer in particular is worth mentioning simply because there is something I need to talk about about his opening line. His opening line gave an insight as to why comics are a better medium for cyberpunk than novels are. And that is because the opening line of his novel Neuromancer is interpreted differently for everyone in this room. And the the opening line, of course, is the sky above the port was the color of a television turned to a dead channel. However, depending on what model of TV you have, what generation of TV you have, it's a different color each time. So in that statement, did you think about the sky being gray and overcast and maybe snowy? Or did you think it was bright blue? Right? Something to consider because comics as a medium give you that visual. I can put you in the space of it is a snowy night. I can put you in the space of it's a dark night. Or, you know, bright blue. And I don't think the character was, you know, running around, you know, sneaking around in a company trying to, you know, do, do some spy stuff under a bright blue sky, right? But given that that is your interpretation, it messes with the picture and messes with the story a little bit which is one of the reasons why I wanted to take some time and point that out. So, moving on to the Japanese cyberpunk style uh, side, uh, the Japanese cyberpunk market, I guess I should say. Um, it began in 1982 uh, with Akira. Um, most of you have probably heard of Akira at some point, but uh, if you haven't, you've probably seen some of it. Um, in The Matrix, The Matrix took a huge amount from Akira. Um, has roots, in, un unlike... Um, the Western market, it doesn't have roots in literature. It doesn't have roots in science fiction. It had roots in biker gang violence and the punk scene at the time. So it's a much more literal interpretation there, right? But it has a lot of the same aesthetics. And because of um, Neuromancer's influence, Neuromancer was set in Chiba, Japan. So it blew up over there. They're like, oh, this is cool. Somebody's writing about us, right? Um, and so they actually uh, melded a lot of his ideas into what we now know as Akira and Ghost in the Shell and a few others. And you can see kind of the difference. We've got, a, we've got the same kind of like Griebel style here, but we also have a lot more focus and cleaner lines sometimes. Um, there are some odd parallels, though, uh, with, with the aesthetics, right? Um, both wound up having grimy aesthetics, right? They're all dirty worlds. Um, it looks, uh, both of them look at what, what it means to be human. Uh, although Western style tends to focus on Ship of Theseus, tends to focus on capitalism, oppression done through the police state, um, Japan li really likes the brain in a vat. Uh, style. 
Um, it looks at unlocking human potential in the mind, um, as well as oppression through military might, not police state. Um, and generally, they mix um, their different cultures and different aesthetics in. Um, one, this uses Western audiences or Western writers actually use a Asian influence within their cityscapes, within their um, settings. Um, Japan uses it a little more philosophically with it being the oppressor, with it being the attacker. Sometimes there's some sort of interference from some sort of outside country, which is usually the US. Uh, but that, that's how those uh, wind up shaping, shaping up. Um, so a couple of key titles in the genre that uh, we really haven't touched on. Judge Dredd. Everybody probably knows Judge Dredd, whether from the terrible Stallone movie or just in passing or from the good 2012 movie. So um, it is one of the first defining series because remember how The Long Tomorrow came out in 1976? This came out in 77, right? Very odd. Had a five-page limit. If you wrote a Judge Dredd story back in the day, you had five pages to do it in, right? Which um, basically accounts for why cyberpunk is so incredibly busy with its art, right? Um, and we could, we could go in for an hour and talk about Judge Dredd. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. But um, a, lot, a, a huge amount of comic artists, uh, both in the US and uh, in Britain, even though it was a British paper, uh, British magazine that published, um, a, a large number of comic artists that write even today cut their teeth on Judge Dredd. Grant Morrison, absolute, like he, he was known for doing this for years before he ever broke into the actual industry. Um, and it basically concerns itself with a parody of a police state where uh, morality is not in question. It is just simply whatever is the law or whatever is not, right? Another one we mentioned before, Akira. Um, Akira focuses on a, a post-World War III world, um, focused around a group of uh, gangsters uh, who basically just you know, run around and deal drugs and all this other fun stuff. Um, but it focuses on um, enhancing telepathic abilities, right? Pushing that human, uh, the human ability past whatever a normal person would be, right? And it also has a focus on what goes wrong with body modification. And it is worth mentioning that Akira did have one of the biggest movies of all time in uh, animation. Um, it's one of the first works uh, ever translated officially over, uh, over here. Um, but basically, this thing influenced every genre, or every movie, every uh, genre of sci-fi for years, right? Even today, people will copy almost verbatim, shot for shot, different things from this movie. Um, and you can see a couple of different examples of what I'm talking about with things you've probably seen either these shots or you've seen something very similar to these shots before. Um, but as well, we want to touch on Ronan uh, from Frank Miller. We are going to ignore the rest of Frank Miller's work uh, for a minute because there are some problems with some of the things he's written in the past. But Ronan is especially uh, influential simply because um, it was a uh, Japanese person in an American comic in New York in the future. Right? Um, it's one of the first times we ever see like a male Asian lead in a comic setting, in a Western setting. Right? It's not something you see very often. Um, even today, it's not as common as it probably should be, but it's one of the first, first instances where we see something like that. Um, it has a focus on body modification. Again, telepathy. Um, absolutely copied directly from uh, Akira on that one. Um, because it did come out a couple of years after the com Akira comic got started. Uh, but we won't talk too much about it because, as you can see, there are quite a few examples here of what we could be talking about. I'm just pulling out a couple for us to talk about. Um, so, modernization. As our fears, hopes, problems evolve, uh, so does the genre. Um, current problems always are close to technology. Uh, and it morphs and changes, right? Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the key titles in the modern times. I'm not going to talk too much longer, don't worry. Um, so Ghost in the Shell in 1989 and others 
this, this man, um, Shiro Masamune, um, basically only explores this question of what it means to be human. All of his characters are basically post-human. They've been modified to a point where they no longer look human or act even human sometimes. But the question is, are they still human, right? That guy with the bunny ears from Appleseed, um, he doesn't look human. He's like nine feet tall. He's got a giant cyborg eye, right? He is completely changed from what we would recognize as human. And then he goes even further with Ghost of the Shell. Now, some of you might, might remember the uh, movie that came out a couple of years ago, I believe, um, that didn't really address these issues that he was actually writing about. Uh, but basically, it's the quintessential brain in a vat um, manga. Basically, the, M, the main character, the MC, uh, gets in an accident near birth, has her entire body replaced. She's a brain in a vat in a moving human cyborg model, right? So the question of the entire series is, is she human? And it actually, this one in particular brings up some very interesting points where she doesn't consider her body her own. And she has no care if she breaks it because she can always just buy a new one. And if someone, and we see, it, see the comparison between her and other characters who are older, they have an attachment to their body, right? So if they lose their arm, they want their arm replaced. They, they try to avoid injury, even though you could go out and purchase a replacement. And one of the key components of uh, how she acts is that she just goes forward and does whatever she wants, right? She works as a police officer, so she gets in a lot of trouble, right? But, the, but her key is that she has no care for herself because she's just a brain in a vat. She can get a new body, who cares, right? And she switches bodies quite a few times through the series, right, as she breaks them. Um, and it goes actually one step further in, uh, in the later volumes where she basically uploads her entire consciousness to the network and no longer has a body. Or rather, she might have 200 bodies, depending on her needs, right? She no longer views herself, she still views herself as human, but she doesn't view herself in the same capacity as you or I would view ourselves. So it's a very interesting study on how someone who might not ever have had an attachment to their physical body would actually treat the body that they use. So all of, all of his works deal with the same issue of how people you know, communicate, how people interact with you know, humanity, and how they view themselves, and how fully they view themselves as human. Um, as well, I want to touch on blame, because blame is kind of what got this whole thing started. Uh, I've gotten to an argument with one of my friends who uh, talked to me a lot about um, what blame meant and the philosophies behind it and everything else. And we won't go into all of that, but I do want to touch on it because it does focus on a biomechanical world. Um, and it is one of the few series that I've been able to find that is completely post-human. No humans exist. They've gone extinct. And the problem is that this whole cityscape was gene-coded to humans. But humans no longer exist. We're all post-human at this point. So what do we do? So the whole story is them trying to find this gene sequence to actually like reactivate the city and get it and get their uh, selves back to get back to normal life, but doesn't really happen. Uh, the story is very famously vague. It's very notorious for not really having an ending. It just kind of continues, and he just stopped making it. Um, whether or not you know the ending is what you think it is, is kind of up to you and up to um, the audience as a whole. Um, as well, which kind of brings me to um, the other brain in a vat jar, uh, other brain in a vat story, there we go, um, also known as Battle Angel Alita. If you remember, there, were a couple of there was a movie made by that, that a couple of years ago too. They've been mining these for a long time. Um, but it's another brain in a vat uh, story Character on the left, still alive because she's just a brain, right? Um, this particular particular series um, dealt with a lot more Western themes, a lot more action, uh, violence levels, um, a lot of different thematic elements of Western culture than any other manga 
up to this point. Um, it started in 1990. The first series ran until 1995. The next series started immediately, which was the same series. Um, just part two ran till about 2014, 15. The third ser series, which is also the same series, is still ongoing. This man has been writing uh, this story for about 30 years at this point. Um, so you can actually go and pick these volumes up uh, in like almost any store still to this day. Um, but a couple of key elements in particular, you can see the disconnect between uh, the body and mind because she is fixed piece by piece. You can see in these panels, like she was, she got her arms, but she's still on wheels down that bottom corner. Um, Body modification in Ship of Theseus comes back into play very heavily with this one simply because every character is modified in some way. Even if you can't see it, they're modified in some way, even if it's just for cooking. They might have a couple of tools in their arm, right? Um, and then, of course, Transmetropolitan, uh, on the Western, Western side of things, uh, focuses on journalism, focuses on uh, politics. It's a comedy-based series, but the satire is very biting. Um, you'll recognize a lot of the arguments uh, that the author presents. Uh, the main character is a journalist and he is fully human. So all of the side characters are the ones where he encounters it. So he's the observer and the storyteller of all of these weird and wacky hijinks that we've all gotten into post-human. Um, and then, of course, it would be remiss of me if I did not mention this one because it's literally the condensation of everything I've just talked about. Um, Silent Mobius uh, by uh, Kia Asamiya um, basically combined every idea that she could think of into one giant story. Um, and it shaped the modern interpretation because it ran from 1989 to 1999 and basically changed as things changed in the world. Uh, but we have a cyborg with a half-machine body, ancient Western magic, ancient Japanese magic, super hackers with disconnected body and brains from their bodies, uh, fully digital people, AIs who overwrite real personas, um, mutants who unlock their potentials and their genes through drugs, uh, half-humans, half-demons, and, of course, the pure human, right? That is literally everything that I just talked about and every type of aspect of cyberpunk just slammed into one series. Um, very, and then, of course, very briefly, I want to talk about Marvel and DC. Uh, Marvel and DC don't deal with cyberpunk too much. Most of what they deal with is the future world, right? Um, they treat the genre the same way, uh, but they only use it um, for backstories of their time traveling or their future characters, right? The future has gone wrong. The travelers come to right the wrong. Uh, thematically, it's not much, not much is really told about it except... Monsters appeared, robots appeared, apocalypse happened, something, something like that. Um, world design-wise, we only see uh, glimpses. Uh, the influence really shows more in character design, right? And a couple of uh, characters I want you to be aware of. Cable, Bishop, a lot of different X-Men. Uh, Spider-Man 2099, um, which we'll probably see in the new Spider-Man movie whenever that comes out, Spider-Verse movie when that comes out. Uh, Batman from Year 100, Booster Gold, and various enemies, uh, but especially note the Sentinels from X-Men, right? And then, just to give you an idea of what Marvel and DC have done, you can see Bishop, Cable, Batman, and Spider-Man 2099. So, um, just as an example. So, talked all about these different aspects. Let's look at the melting pot a little bit. Each market had similar ideas, uh, dirty worlds, seedy underbelly stories. Um, uh, they were approached differently with influences showing up um, in unique ways in each culture. Uh, but as the world has become more open, their, uh, basically, their genre basically encountered a feedback loop. The feedback loop is basically every time a new work comes out, they feed on it. They use those ideas. They meld and mash and create together until they have what we now know as the modern cyberpunk market. Um, they incorporate everything into it in order to ask the question better, right? Um, whether that's aesthetics, whether that's technologies, whether that's philosophies, whether that's ideas, they all smash together and twist around into this very unique genre. Um, basically, it causes a, 
a uh, melding. Today, in today's cyberpunk uh, basically reflects just about the same in each market, right? I talked about how certain ones were getting like more westernized and certain ones are getting more heavily influenced through eastern aspects. Um, but basically, nowadays, they basically evened out. No matter which uh, style you go into, you're going to find about the same philosophies, the same styles, the same stories. The art will be different, obviously. The author's styles and writing styles will be different. But um, a lot of the core elements will be pretty much on the level, right? Um, you can see a couple of comparisons as to how things have kind of evolved, right? Back in the day, we really only had a proto-internet. We, really, we didn't have high speed until uh, very recently. Um, used to be military overreach was a very big, big thing. Now it's usually the police state. Um, we're looking at things like fear of aliens. Uh, usually there is an acceptance of aliens unless it's uh, coherent to the story. Um, expanding the mind from military might, telepathy, uh, <laughs> telepathy, there we go. Um, uh, and then the new version is more expanding the mind for art, for knowledge, for you know, the secrets of the universe style. Uh, humans are modified, but still partially human, no matter what. Um, and nowadays, it's humans are whatever you feel like as long as the brainwaves stay in intact in some sort of way, right? Um, so cynical but hopeful, right? Uh, it reflects the news stories, problems with the world, problems with society. Um, keeps kind of a lower cynical view of things, but it still remains, we must fight for these issues, we must, you know, try and create good in the world. Um, so basically, as bad as the world gets, the prevailing theory is one uh, that human humanity will continue to grow and evolve and try and be better. Um, and then tying it back to the very first question, what it means to be human, um, each, each story from uh, the earliest to to the newest titles seem to agree on one major particular thing, which is that the core of a human lies in something in the mind, right? Not necessarily physical, doesn't matter how much you lose, don't, doesn't matter if you're a fully robotic person uploaded to the internet. Um, whether or not, uh, it doesn't have to be physical, but rather the brain patterns of each individual creates what, whatever a human actually is. Uh, whether that's a soul or a series of electrical pulses, each story says that as long as you are you, um, it doesn't matter if you're a fully natural human or completely robotic, you're still a human. Thank you so much. <laughs>